Chapter 11 of Trading Jeff and His Dog. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lewis, Houston, Texas. Trading Jeff and His Dog by Jim Kilgard. Chapter 11 The Talking Tree. They stood along the wall, unkept and untidy, but there was something about them that was as cold and deadly as the whine of a bullet or the fangs of a viper. They were lean as weasels and as fast. The rifles they held from the repeating carbines belonging to Barr, Yancey, Dab, and Grant to Pete's single-shot fifty caliber seemed a part of them, and they had grown up with those rifles. These were men who had no shots to waste, and who therefore must make every one count. They would be shamed if they shot a turkey or grouse anywhere except through the head, and they had only raunchous cheers for whoever was unable to shoot as well. Turn around, Pete ordered gruffly. Not here, you fool, Barr countermanded the order. A fair half of Smithville will come a-racin'. Pete sneered. Let em come. They won't find us. No, obviously Barr was in command. This goes my way. Jeff stood, cold and shaken, and knowing that. When he walked into the cabin, he had walked into his own death. These must be the men about whom Bill Ellis had warned him. But why should the Whitneys want to kill him? Summoning all his past experience with Territ Enterprises, LTD, which had taught him to try to appear outwardly cool in the hottest of spots, Jeff did his best to seem not only calm, but to take full command of the situation. "'You're in my cabin,' he said quietly. "'We know. Pete's eyes were venom-laden. But you won't be needing it for long.' The rest of the Whitney said nothing. Jeff studied them and tried, by reading their faces, to determine his next act. Pete, so poisoned with hatred that it distorted his face, offered nothing. Yancey, Dab, and Grant might be swayed if it were not for Barr. Dominating the rest and with them, at the same time he stood apart from them. He was strong. Pete was weak. And for that very reason, extremely dangerous. The rest needed leadership. But while there was no lust in Barr's eyes, neither was there any mercy. Jeff looked steadily at him and kept his voice quiet. What's it about? We liked you, peddler. Barr's voice was very grave. We liked you, and you traded fair with your goods. But there's no bit of room in these hills for a policeman. Policeman? Jeff exploded. We know Barr seemed downcast, as though someone he trusted had betrayed him. The boy told us. Told you what? All, and twill serve you not to plead or ask pardon. If you're a man, be one now. Jeff's head twirled. Apparently, while he was in Ackerton, one or more of the Whitneys had met Dan, and the boy had spun some fantastic tale. Jeff looked over his captors again and saw only unyielding determination. He took a deep breath before he spoke. What did Dan tell you? Enough, Barr grunted. We had the truth from a babe's mouth. But, Dab interrupted. What made you set your mind on the thought that a Whitney killed blazer didn't you we do not pry into killings bar said you erred when you did 
another piece fitted into the puzzle. Evidently Dan had told whoever it was he had met that he and Jeff were out to avenge Johnny, and doubtless he had said that Jeff was an officer. Jeff pondered Deb's question and Barr's comment. It was possible, even probable, that only his killer knew who had shot Johnny. Whoever was guilty would be a fool if he was anything except closed mouth about it. Shooting, Pete said nasally, twill serve not to do elsewise. I said we'd wait, Barr growled. Jeff breathed a little easier. The Whitneys intended to shoot him, but not immediately, and he wondered what they were waiting for and why. Perhaps, as Barr had mentioned, they were too close to Smithville, and in order to remain unseen, perhaps they would wait until night to take him out. Maybe there were other reasons, but evidently he had a little time. Jeff took a shot in the dark. I'll be missed in Ackerton. We know, Barr muttered. The boy said it all. Jeff moistened dry lips with his tongue. His chance shot had ricocheted. Whatever story Dan had concocted tied in with Jeff's trip to Ackerton. He had to think his way out of this. People will be looking for me. They won't find you, Barr promised. But could be they'll find us. Jeff said pointedly, five against one? You had a shotgun when you come in. And if I'd known who was waiting, I'd have come shooting. But you can all cheer up. Maybe those who'd look for me won't expect to need guns. And you can take them just like you did me. Maybe they won't even have guns. Then you can shoot them down from ambush like you did Johnny Blazer. Six pair of eyes regarded him, and only Pete's remained unchanged. The rest shifted from deliberate purposefulness to cold fury, and Barr's face turned white. His lips tautened, and he bit his words off and spat them at Jeff. Ye lie. I do not lie. Swiftly Barr closed the distance between them. His left hand snaked forward, and his open palm struck Jeff's cheek. It was not a blow that a man might offer a worthy antagonist, but an insulting slap. Barr's eyes were glowing coals. Ye lie, policeman, nary a man in the hill shot Blazer that away. Jeff snarled back. I don't lie, and I can prove it. His face still white, Barr stepped back. He jerked his rifle to a shooting position and lowered it reluctantly. Tense his stretched buckskin, he studied Jeff and snapped. Say those words again. Johnny Blazer not only had no gun when he was shot, but whoever shot him was hiding when he did it, Jeff pronounced each word very slowly and very clearly, as though he were rehearsing careful speech. How did ye know he lacked aught to shoot back? I, Jeff thought of Bill Ellis and caught himself in time. I saw someone who found him on my Ackerton trip. Johnny had no gun when they picked him up. Shut up, Barr twirled furiously on his cousin who had started to speak. He said, more to himself than to anyone else, Blazer's gun was found in his cabin. Jeff laughed tauntingly. You hillbillies are brave men. Now all you have to do is admit that whoever shot Johnny was hiding in the brush. Still furious, Barr regarded him steadily. How do you know that? All I had to do was look. What'd you look at? Jeff answered contemptuously. I wouldn't expect any of you to think that far, but the bullet went clear through Johnny. 
There are enough trees and shrubs around, so it had to nick one of them. It's easy to figure the angle it came from. Jeff held his breath. He himself had not thought of this until now, but it had to be right. Johnny Blazer was a woodsman. If whoever shot him had been in the open, Johnny would have seen him. Because he was unarmed, he probably would have died anyhow. But he would have died in the brush, for he would have at least had tried to escape. Slow-thinking Dad digested Jeff's statements and spoke solemnly. Hits right, Barr. None among us thought to look. Barr was momentarily bewildered. None saw the need. But need there might be. Go look, Dab. I go too, Pete offered. Dab's going. Rifle in the crook of his arm, Dab left the cabin. Jeff waited uneasily. Dab's education might be a bit short in the conjunction of verbs and more complex forms of mathematics, but it had taught him all about ballistics. When he came back, he would know whether or not Johnny had been shot from ambush. If he hadn't been, Jeff looked at Barr's stormy eyes and shuddered. Twenty minutes later, Dab returned. He came slowly and somewhat shrunkenly, as though he had been both derided and belittled. He stood in the doorway, not looking at the rest, and when he spoke, his voice was muffled and reluctant. Hits true, Barr. Hits true enough. Who's ever shot Blazer was crouching in a little patch of evergreens, a hundred and fifty steps from that road, he said as though that was vastly important. With my own eyes I saw his crouch. He broke some twigs, better to see. Something came into the cabin with him, an unseen but heavy and mournful something that seemed, within itself, to rob everyone of the power of speech. The Whitneys looked sideways at each other, and Barr spoke slowly. Thus she saw, thus I saw. Where did the lead strike, the tree? Dab answered dully, it's buried in the tree. There was silence which Barr broke with a soul-desolated cry. This day I know shame. They were weighted as though by heavy burdens, and Jeff understood why they scrounged themselves. By the cowardly action of one of their number, something they could never get back had been taken from all of them. They must hang their heads because among them walked a man who was not a man. Jeff rubbed salt into their wounds. You can all be proud of yourself. It was as though they did not hear this terrible crime, this hideous sin had been committed, but they did not want to believe. Grant said hopefully, maybe it twere an outlander. Twere no outlander, Barr muttered. Twas a hillman. Jeff trembled, fired with another idea. If the tree could talk, he had thought, it might tell who shot Johnny Blazer. The tree could talk. Are you afraid to find out who did it? he challenged. Barr glared at him. And how do we do that? Dig the bullet out of the tree. Pay no heed to him, Pete intoned. He would but tangle us and lead us from him. Hold your tongue, Barr ordered gruffly. No man walks safe with one among us who shoots men as he would a varmint. Get the bullet, Dab. Dab left a second time, and Jeff hoped his wildly beating heart could not be heard. To these mountain men, killing was right, as long as men met in a fair fight. But it was soul-blackening, the extreme depths of degradation, to kill as Johnny Blazer's killer had. 
and that killer was about to be known. Only one rifle could have fired the fatal shot, and the hillmen would recognize that bullet and know who had fired it. Or would they? Four of the Whitney's present carried thirty caliber rifles, and there must be more in the hills. Jeff's hopes alternately rose and waned. Then Deb came back and held up the leaden slug so all could see. Four pair of eyes swung accusingly on Pete, trooming where it had struck Johnny and then the tree. The slug still retained its shape where it had fitted its brass shell. There would be no mistake. It was a fifty caliber. Sweat broke out on Pete's forehead. Hit, hit, twarn't me. Bar spat, twore you. He, he stole pelts out of my traps. You met him unfair. Pete half screamed. He had a rifle and shot before I did. Bar said relentlessly. Where was his rifle? I, I brought it back here. He had no rifle. You lay like a whiskered cat a four mouse's den and gave him no fairness. Do not add a lie to cowardice. Jeff said eagerly, Now you know, Bar. Now all of you know, and Dan did part of the truth. I promised him that we'd find out who shot his father. It was all we wanted and all we will want. I'm not a policeman. Bar looked squarely at him. So you say. It's true. Go to Ackerton and find out what I did there, and think a little. Neither the Whitneys nor anyone else can take the law into their own hands and forever keep it there. Do the right thing now. And what is that? Take Pete into Smithville and turn him over to Bill Ellis. He'll get a fair trial. Pah! Yancey exploded. Give our kin into the law's keep. Tis best to shoot him ourselves. Stop the talking. Barr was still looking at Jeff. You say ye are a peddler and naught else. I say so. Yet you saw fit to beholden yourself to the boy. You took it upon yourself to tell him you'd settle with who's ever shot his father. I did. Then be ye peddler or policeman, ye shall. What do you mean? We'll bide here through the day, Barb pronounced. With the night we shall go to the cabin on Trilly Ridge. You have a shotgun, and Barr inclined a contemptuous head toward Pete. He has a rifle. With the dawn, both at the same time, you'll walk on Trilly Ridge. If you come down the ridge, peddler, you'll be free to come and go among us. If Pete comes down it, he has a twenty-four hours to leave the hills. I shall sit with ye in the cabin. Grant, Dab, and Yancey shall be at the front of Twilly Ridge. Just shoot should one of ye flee rather than fight. Grant, Dab, and Yancey nodded solemn agreement. Jeff's head reeled. With tomorrow's dawn, he was to fight a death duel with Pete Whitney. Barr would be with them all night to make sure that things went according to his fantastic plan. Dab, Grant, and Yancey would be waiting to kill whoever violated the terms of the duel. If Jeff won, even though he would be privileged to remain in the hills, he would have killed a man. Regardless of what happened or who won, the Whitneys would have rid themselves of an unwelcome kinsman and closed the mouth of one who might be a policeman. Jeff licked dry lips. He had never killed a man, and knew that he could never kill. He tried to think of some way out, of something he could, and there was nothing. Jeff licked his lips again. What say you? Barr demanded. It's, it's a crazy idea. Just what you wanted, what you told the boy you'd get. 
I didn't tell him I'd get it this way. For heaven's sakes, man, listen to reason. The law, and not me, should take care of this. Barr's eyes flamed. Are ye a policeman? No. The boy said different. Maybe, Grant said slowly. Twould be best to shoot him. I'll go on Trilly Ridge with, with who used to be my kin. Jeff heaved a great sigh. First things first, always a new customer down the road. And if he went on the ridge, he would have time to think. If he did not, his hours were numbered anyway. He said slowly, Let it be your way, Barr. Barr said quietly, "'Tis well you say so, for it would not be right should a Whitney shoot a Whitney, or be shot by one. Do ye lack aught? My pack. Barr looked curiously at him, but Jeff made no attempt to satisfy his curiosity. He had always been able to pull almost anything he needed out of his pack, and there should be something to help him now. He couldn't think of what it was, but the pack had been a part of him for so long. He would feel better if he had it. Where's the pack? Barr asked. At Granny Wilson's. Get it and fetch it, Barr directed Yancey. Do you need aught else? Jeff's brain was still twirling. No. Barr glanced inquiringly at Pete, who stared like a vicious animal and said nothing. There was finality in Barr's words. Ask no more, for it shall not be given. Both have had your say. The words hammered dully at Jeff's ears. Then he awoke with a start and swallowed twice. For the first time, he became aware of the shotgun shells that weighted his pocket. They were even more harmless than so many stones, for they were still loaded with paper. But he had been given a chance to speak, and he had not spoken. Pal went wild with joy when Jeff returned from Ackerton. He stayed as close as he could get, for he had missed his master greatly and needed him sorely. He smirked at the white kitten when he spotted it, but made no hostile move because Jeff had brought it. Woolly contented, Pal lay at Jeff's feet while he breakfasted and talked with Granny and Dan. When Jeff rose to leave, Pal danced happily to the door and wagged his tail in anticipation. Everything was once more as it had been and should be. They were about to go peddling together on the trails. The big dog glanced back to see if Dan was coming too. Instead, the boy grasped his collar. You stay here. Pal flattened his ears and dropped his tail, but he was not allowed to go. For a full minute he stood hopefully in front of the door. Then he went sadly back into the kitchen, playing with the ball of paper that Granny had wadded up and thrown on the floor. The fluffy kitten arched its back and spat. Pal paid no attention. His heart was heavy, and Joey had gone with Jeff. All the rest of the morning he was a wooden dog who did not even rouse himself when Yancey Whitney came to the door, said that Jeff wanted his pack and went away with it. That afternoon he followed Dan about the hill, but he had no eyes for the sheep, the cow, the mule, and he lacked zest even for chasing blackbirds that came to pillage Granny's garden. He cared only about the trail up which Jeff had come and down which he had gone again. That night, after Dan and Granny had gone to bed, Pal padded restlessly over to the door. Eagerly, he sniffed every wind that blew and every scent that tickled his nose. He knew when six steer, feeling safe in the cover of night, came out of the forest and climbed the hill to graze 
in the sheep pasture. He heard a mouse rustle, and he was aware when a night flying owl cruised past the door. All these things he smelled or heard. He felt only the absence of his master. The night was very deep and very black when Pal's yearning for Jeff became unbearable. He pushed his nose against the door, and when he did so, the latch rattled slightly. He pricked up his ears and bent his head toward the noise, but he did not understand any of the mysterious ways of which people fasten things. Slowly he reared against the door, sniffing at every crack. Getting down, he trembled anxiously. Then, inch by inch, he began a second inspection of the door. It was completely accidental when, in raising his head, he pushed the latch upward and the door swung open. Pal did not linger to think about anything else. He knew only that the way was clear. He flew into the night, found Jeff's trail, and raced along it. At Johnny Blazer's cabin, he scented Jeff's trail and that of the five Whitneys. The pack laden Leancey had gone back there, leading into the hills. Pal followed along. He halted momentarily at the foot of Trilly Ridge, for Dab Whitney was sitting on a big rock, and the smell of his pipe was rank and heavy in the darkness. Pal slipped past, knowing that he could not be seen in the night. He caught the odor of wood smoke, then mingled with it, with the scents of Pete and Bar Whitney and of Jeff. Abandoning the trail, Pal followed his nose to his beloved master. He came to the cabin and scratched on the door. End of chapter 11 Recording by Kristen Lewis, Houston, Texas